All right, how long do we run for? I would do half hour. Everything I do is half hour. I'll keep it concise. <laughs> the podcast that I've been listening to lately, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which runs five and a half hours, and the Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast, but he has Sam Harris on there, that goes easy four hours. Well, you know, it just shows you there's a niche in there for everybody. Yeah. Where there's a place for a four-hour podcast, a half-hour, you know, it's just so uh, across the board, right? If you don't like this, you don't listen to it, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's not like this is anything on the dial, right? You know, this is, you just tune in. If you don't like this part, you skip forward. Is it just that difficult to keep this thing interesting for more than a two years? It is. Pay attention to that. Ask yourself why you're not interested. It's like, this is not relevant. This is boring. This is not to the point. You know, I make an mental tick of these reasons. And in my own work here, I, you know, try to think of that. All right, let's get this show on. All right. Brian, are we recording? Okay, make me sound good, man. Turn some knobs. (laughs) (laughs) All right, welcome to Veteran Voices. This is the podcast where we talk with those who tell and share veteran stories in creative and interesting ways. And on the podcast today, we have Nick Grimes, who is the director of the Veterans Breakfast Club's new post-9-11 veteran storytelling project. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Glad to be here. You're no stranger to this, are you? I'm not. I'm a bit of an artiste myself. (laughs) An artiste storyteller. Well, hey, let's uh, talk a little bit about this project, Post-9-11 Veterans, um, getting their stories. Now, first off, for those who don't know, what is a post-9-11 veteran? That's a more complicated question than I think that you meant it to be when you asked it, because <laughs> I've been wondering that myself lately. So uh, initially, a post-9-11 veteran was someone, you know, roughly, I'm 30, so ballpark of my age. Uh, you know, we were in high school, college when 9-11 happened, joined the military after September 11, 2001, and fought in the global war on terror. But as the wars are winding down, I mean, recently there's, you know, uptick in Syria and Iraq and stuff. But hypothetically, if the wars were to wind down, I don't know where that line would stop being a post 9-11 veteran, right? But basically, it's someone... It could be, yeah, anything after or anyone that was in the service or joined the service after September 11, 2001 would technically be a post 9-11 veteran. That being said, uh, in 2014, the last Vietnam veteran that was drafted into the army retired in 2014. So he was a post 9-11 veteran as well. Yeah, so you could join before year 2000. Yeah, so anyone that joined after or was in during September 11, 2001 would be a post-9-11 veteran. Yeah, and to confuse it a little bit more, you know, it's often referred to as the global war on terror. But terrorism was around. I mean, I I served during some terrorist actions. So there was terrorism that we were fighting in the 80s. Yeah, terrorism's been around. I mean, there was, you know, know, murders at the Olympics uh, in Israel, bus bombings constantly. Terrorism's not a new thing, but I think it was certainly de- decisive moments, September 11th. I mean, that's when like the United States like really got involved, right? When it became something that really affected us in our day-to-day lives, right? Like um, it was just abstract before that, you know, like Lockerbie bombing, stuff like that. You hear about these things, but they didn't, they didn't really mean much probably to the average American, you know? September 11th, like that was a personal attack. Most people felt. I sure felt it. I was in Alabama, you know? I wasn't anywhere close to New York City, but it sure felt like that was an attack on me and my family that day. And what year did you join? 2003, right after I graduated high school. When 9-11 happened, what was your reaction? I didn't even know. So I was in, uh, I was in geometry, sitting there. It was like 10.30 in the morning, whatever. And uh, my next door neighbor, Jana Lunsford, she goes bust her door. She was like, somebody just blew up the Pentagon. And then we're like, what? And then she's like, and also buildings in New York. I was like, holy shit. Like my next class that I went to was actually weightlifting. <laughs> like that's what we did instead of gym there. So I went in there and our coach was like a good old boy from 
you know, bumfuck Alabama. And he's like, obviously this was the Palestinians and we're going to war. So like that, I was like, oh shit, like this is, this is heavy stuff. Like this is, I didn't, I didn't think it was trivial. Certainly. I felt like I imagined my grandfather felt like when Pearl Harbor happened, you know, like this was very clearly a premeditated act. Right. And we respond to premeditated acts of violence. Right. Like we, it's not something we just let go. So we knew things were different. Right. But like, we didn't know how yet. Took a few years. By the time I graduated in 2003 and decided to join the Army, like, I knew how different things were. You are post-9-11 veteran. I would call myself a veteran of the Cold War, the second great period of the Cold War, the 80s. And then there are those veterans who are of the Vietnam era, Korea, World War II, you know, and backwards. How would you define, in a general sense, your generation of veterans? I mean, aside from just, you know, the time and place— of after the attacks in, uh, you know, on 9-11. But how would you define your generation? What characterizes the post-9-11 veterans generation for you? Yeah, so, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, the, there's a massive range of ages. But to me, like, the typical post-9-11 vet, right, is it a millennial? A millennial. Like, we are, I, I remember, I was probably, what, like, six, seven years old, um, sitting in the kitchen while my mom was cooking. She had one of those little black and white TVs in the corner, man, and watching Desert Storm, you know? Like, that's that's the era that I think of, and that's the era that most of the, the guys and girls that I served with and that I just know now that I met the veterans themselves, like, we all find a fit in that five-year age range. And by and large, you're, you're a younger group. Yeah. Uh, a weird thing that I noticed, like, in Afghanistan, right? Like, I met, like, British troops and stuff, and, like, it wasn't until later on that I realized, like, why? I didn't meet a 19-year-old British guy when I was 19 in Afghanistan, you know? Like, all the British dudes I met were, like, 30. Oh, really? Prince Harry is, like, the youngest dude <laughs> that they sent over there, right? And he's, like, a pilot. Like, I, I just—Australian guys, too. We didn't meet any young Australian guys. And plus, like, uh, I looked really young for my age, for 19. Like, I looked like I was 12. I have my license from before I deployed. It'll prove it, too. Like, I, I, look, so, I look like a baby, and most of us are like babies. So, like, we look like adolescents <laughs> over there fighting this thing. Um, and that's, I have this tendency now to like talk about the kids fighting over there. Cause that's, I mean, that's how I view them still. Right. Cause that's what we were. But yeah. It's really young technology driven. Like we were, we were the internet first internet generation to fight a war. You know what I mean? Like, um, that understood like, Oh, well, you don't know something, Google it. Right. Like you don't have to go read a book. You can just Google it and get that specific answer instead of reading through a whole entire book to figure out what you want to get. And I think that generation is also tremendously more. Well, it's historically more pluralistic than any other generation of veterans in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of what people did. Um, yeah. Very I mean, complicated. I, I, I read this thing on Facebook and, you know, just reading comments on Facebook is the dumbest thing you could possibly ever do. But I read this comment. It was from an older veteran. And he was like, I hope he's like, you know, the millennials are a lost generation, but I hope this next generation is much more conservative and responsible than the millennials. And my response was like, hey, dickhead, <laughs> what generation has ever been more conservative than the preceding generation? Like, that's not how evolution works, right? Like, we become more liberal. Like, I'm more liberal than my father. My father is more liberal than his father. Like, that's just how it works. Like, we're not going to take, we're not going to take steps back to a segregated army, right? To like not allowing women to fly, you know, that's not going to happen now. And I do feel, to a sense, like this was the first major conflict, like post-segregation, right? Like, so it's always been an integrated army for me. 
to me, like when I look around and like my buddies that are veterans, like that's what I see. Like that's, that's like, um, that is what I view America as, right? Like this melting pot of different genders, different races, uh, you know, different religions. Uh, we had Muslim guys, we had Jewish guys, Christians, atheists, you know, it's just, it is much more inclusive. But, you know, there's a, they lifted the ban on transgender soldiers and no one gives a shit. Don't ask, don't tell was repealed. I was in when don't ask, don't tell was repealed. Nobody gave a shit. It was like, oh, can the dude next to me kill bad guys? Right? Like, it's like, the answer is yes. All right, he's cool. Can he not do his job? Well, fuck him. I don't care if straight or gay, right? Like, it's, a, it's, a, it's I think, a more pure form of meritocracy than anything else we've got. That's interesting. My experience, I, I can't imagine women on combatant ships because there were none. I can't imagine women in combat roles because there really weren't any when I was in. Right. Diversity, I mean, just across the board. I mean, of course, there were people of different races, but wow, I mean, not like today. It's very pluralistic. It's very um, accommodating, I think. I was in the same company for like six years. And like our first, the first first sergeant I had was a white guy. Uh, he was there for like three years. The next first sergeant I had in that same company was uh, from the Philippines. The next first sergeant we had was born in China. The next first, sur first sergeant we had was born in uh, Puerto Rico. It, yeah, there wasn't this white guy straight white male monopoly on anything. You know what I mean? So like, that's, it's good stuff. That's how it should be. So when we talk about, you know, the post 9-11 veteran generation, uh, obviously it's not monolithic. So when we consider the stories that, you know, are there, the accounts of the experiences of your generation, that's not going to be monolithic either, right? No, absolutely not. Um, so I think two points to that. One, Everyone had vastly differing experiences, right? Just like in any other sector, or job, anywhere in society. But also, like, we're not far removed from that service, from those experiences. So a lot of guys and girls haven't had the time to process it right yet. So they don't even, if they share their experience with you now, I imagine it's going to be very different 10 years sharing that same experience, right? Like, they're not, people haven't fleshed it out yet. And there's a lot of gray there that hasn't been able to be... Um, categorized, right? Like there's a lot of like, I don't know what the fuck that was. I don't know. You know, the World War II generation, you know, I mean, they all say I'm a a person. And we didn't talk about this stuff after the war years, right? You know, five, 10, 15 years after they weren't talking about it. In part, like what you're saying, they didn't have their heads around it. I mean, it was just so complicated and just so tra traumatic and you know, yada, yada. So here we are 10, 15 years right into this this generation, yeah, people don't have it figured out. They, they don't understand what this all means in terms of just, you know, contextualizing these experiences with our wider life experiences. You're home, you're, you're working, you're raising families, you're on with your careers, just like the World War II generation was in the 50s, right, right. In, the, in the 60s. What are the compelling stories that we're hearing of your generation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, what are the stories rising to the surface right yeah, now? So like like the themes, yeah. common themes, mm -hmm. uh, don't ask, don't tell has been a big one oh. because that was about smack dab in the middle of, you know, these 16 years was the repeal of that. Well, maybe a little 2010, I think that was repealed, right? So about nine years into the war. Um, so you had uh, these group of guys and gals that could die and bleed for their country, right? But they couldn't tell... They were like literally were not allowed to tell who they were sleeping with, right? And that's like, they'd be kicked out for that. And we've done interviews with people and they've, they've talked about that. And that's painful, right? To be willing to die uh, because of this American ideal, but also like modern day oppression of if you tell us who you are, what you are, you're out of here. So that's a compelling story. Yeah, I, I'm surprised at the lack of bitterness we've seen from, from people that were, you know, oppressed by that rule, right? Like, uh, I feel like 
I personally would be very angsty and angry and upset and hold a grudge about that. But, you know, it's that millennial crowd of, you know, they weren't ready for it yet, but now they are. So it's okay. We'll give them a pass on that. But I guess what else are they supposed to do? Like, I've been impressed other areas of society for so long that they're just used to it. Um, like, I, I like to hear about female experience post 9-11. You know, there's a lot of talk about women in combat. But let's be honest, right? Like, women have been in combat since the beginning of this thing. Uh, Jessica Lynch, right? When was that? 2003, 2004. There's been girls, women, ladies, whatever you want to call them, on the front lines doing this thing. Because in Iraq and Afghanistan, these are devoutly Muslim countries. They do not allow their women to talk to men. Not happening. So you don't have a, a woman there with you. You're cut off 51% of the population. You can't, you can't speak to them. You can't engage them. can't question them. can't anything. So they start bringing women in to do this very early on. Uh, look at the KIAs. A lot of women in there. And, and those aren't training accidents. Those are, you know, indirect fire, direct fire. Those are engaging with the enemy. So it's kind of a bullshit idea that women haven't been in combat. And there's all this uproar of it now. But you don't hear that from the post-9-11 vets themselves, right? That's, and I love our older generations of veterans. But our older generations of veterans are very used to their older way of thinking. So they have more of a problem with that kind of stuff than we do. So like Rachel Washburn, right? She attached to special forces and people were blown away by that. Like she was out kicking outdoors and stuff and she's every but what, five, three, 125 pounds, uh, but she was doing the damn thing. So those are cool stories. Is post-traumatic stress one of those themes that comes up in this generation, unlike previous generations where no doubt about it, you're going to suffer traumatically, psychologically. This generation seems to talk about and openly engage these issues around post-traumatic stress, it seems to me, more so than others. Is that another theme that comes up in the generation's storytelling? I, no. No. I don't think so. Uh, it, okay, so it, it's much more publicized, right? Like, it is, more, it is more part of the broad conversation we have about veterans. Um, it's something that's more understood now. It's something that we're making a better effort to try to take care of but i don't know a lot of people that have been diagnosed with ptsd that really want to talk about their diagnosis of ptsd right so you have like the stigma of it while you're in um which is completely different from the stigma of it while you're out the stigma of it while you're in is you know this person you, you feel uh, you, you know people are afraid that chain of command your buddies are like oh this person's weak right they can't handle it which in reality like, you know everybody's going through the same shit but then when you get out, there's this, oh, people are going to think I'm crazy, right? They're going to think I'm that guy living under a bridge talking to myself. And I'll be honest, like a lot of that is fucking wounded warrior project. Like those guys have pushed this narrative of this poor, broken veteran for so long. That's, that's what people think about. You ask about a post-9-11 veteran, they think of that little wounded warrior logo. Think of somebody missing a leg, missing an arm, fucking crazy. So people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to have that narrative projected onto their service, right? But I think like in private conversation, it comes up all the time. Talk about the, the meds you get from the VA and, you know, the bullshit treatment or whatever. What are you hearing in the project, the storytelling project? Are you, are you hearing a certain level of discussion, stories around post-traumatic stress or not at all? Not really. You know, when we interview someone at a live event on a podcast, um, maybe 10% of the time, it gets into that, but I, I, that's not really the, it's not a prevalent narrative, certainly. I don't know. Maybe we should explore that more. Maybe we should 
dig a little deeper for that. I just don't know if people are ready quite yet to talk about that. But it's there. Would you agree? I mean, it, it, oh, they, the stories are there. They're just not, they're not brought out too terribly much right now. Yeah. Again, like the World War II generation, we didn't talk about it. We didn't uh, even discuss this sort of thing until years and years and years later. But the reality is, and we get this from just the stories, that they were, when a car backfired, they were hitting the deck. They were alcoholics. They were workaholics. They were abusive in a lot of ways. Right. They they suffered all the, they had all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress that everyone else did. But they didn't have a name for it. They didn't have a name for it. And, and I will say that, I mean, there is, there's something to be said for the fact that in like private conversations, it comes up a lot. You know, we want people to share their experiences with the public, with, you know, the broader community, but baby steps, right? So the fact that it's coming up so much in, in you know, casual, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations is a good sign because it certainly wasn't, I, I you know, I very much doubt my great-grandfather after World War One was talking with his guys he served with over a beer and like, oh man, you know, I'm jumpy, I'm, I get started. Like, I don't, they weren't, you know, they were, they were tough guys, right? And it is important that you have to have a name for it. Like, you have to call it something. There's a push now that it's to call it post-traumatic stress growth, which is interesting. I don't understand it. Yeah. So it's the idea that, yeah, the experiences was traumatic, right? Like it was, because let's be real, like it's, it's just something that human beings aren't wired to do and to see, right? Like it's um, even historically you go back to like biblical times, right? Like so uh, Israelites would go out and fight a battle. And they'd come back, they'd have to spend, you know, a week outside the wall before they come back in city to decompress, to get this out of their system because they were dealing with stuff. So it's something we've always known. Humans aren't good at processing this, right? But we didn't have a name for it. But now, so after you go through this experience and you, like Hemingway say, like, uh, the world breaks everybody. And afterwards, some are strong at the broken places. It's that idea, right? It's that uh, you go through this traumatic experience, but what it does is it doesn't break you. You know, it gives you calluses, right? Like it makes you a much stronger person. If you want people to share their experience, that's a, that's a better way to frame it, certainly. And do you think storytelling can help with that? I do. So I remember when I was like 13, 14 and watching Band of Brothers on HBO. And then like the last episode was just like, you know, 15 minutes of each guy just telling that story. I remember watching it and like, I was, I was like, man, this is kind of sad stuff, right? But then I watched it again when I was like 28. Couldn't stop crying, right? Like, so you, you see this guy who went through this, awful experience at 19, 20 years old, and then didn't talk about it 50, 60 years, but has thought about it every single day. That just breaks your heart, right? Like, uh, I don't know, like, it's not my place, but like, I almost wish like, man, I wish I'd been there just to hear it from them, right? Just to be someone that they could say it to. I don't think it's, it's, it's no different now, right? Like, I think people just need to talk about it. They just need to, because we're not a monolith. Not everybody's going to understand. Not everybody's going to relate. Not everybody's going to empathize, but someone will, you know? And the act of storytelling in and of itself is healing. It's cathartic. It matters. And it forces you to think about it. It forces you to think about if it. If you want to, I mean, so there's a difference between, uh, you know, as someone recounting a series of events and telling a story. To tell a story, you've almost got to write it down first, right? Like to, to be able to practice it. If you're going to write it down or however you're going to craft it, you know, mentally write it down, you've got to really think about the details. And for me, when I think about any given experience, because it was kind of long ago, you know, it's like eight years ago. And it's a very unique experience when you're overseas, like doing this stuff. Like, so things get jumbled. So you have to hash that out in your mind. And what it does is you think about one very specific encounter, and then you start to try to craft that out. And you start to think of all these other things that you haven't thought about in so long. So it kind of, 
it forces you to deal with the big picture of it. Yeah, it, it puts things into perspective. Yeah. It, it allows the mind to put this seemingly incoherent collection of memories and experiences into some sort of order. Sometimes that narrative is accurate. Sometimes it's not, right? We all know what fiction is, you know? And let's talk about like human memory for a second, right? Like how I have these memories that I can see them crystal clear in my mind uh, of like something happening, like an ambush happening, right? And I can see myself looking out the left-hand window and seeing this go on outside of the vehicle, right? But I know I was not in the driver's seat. I was in the passenger seat. So I don't know how the fuck I'm seeing these things or I'm remembering this thing that I know I didn't see from at least that perspective. This is an experience you had in, in Afghanistan when you served there? Yeah, there was, a, um, there was an ambush one day and some stuff went on and I can, in my mind, I can see what's happening to one of the, the Afghan guys because I'm looking out the left-hand window down on my left side. But I was the, the TC, the truck commander. That, so I was in the, the passenger seat. So there's no way I was looking out that left window. So I can't reconcile that, right, with the memory because I know the event happened. And I know that almost everything I know about the or remember about the event happened in that way. But as I see the movie play in my mind, like that's not, it's just not an accurate movie. You know what I mean? It's shot from a weird angle that I shouldn't have had. Hmm. So that's a strange thing. Yeah. Because memory's bad, you know? Sure. It's, and, sure and it's fallible. I'm sure it's from, because I spent a lot of time with the driver and the driver is explaining to me what he saw at the window. So at some point I start to see that too while he's telling me. So that's always a concern, right? Like um, how much of what you think you remember is actually actually happened. It's a weird thing, man. Do you think that the, the memories that people are sharing now, this younger generation, closer to the truth, further from the truth, where are they in, in terms of relative to the truth of, of what actually happened? I mean, it's, it's a crazy question, I know. Yeah. It's very abstract. I mean, we know that older veterans, for example, tell us things about, you know, these battles and I mean, iconic uh, experiences, World War II, for example. They don't jive up with history, but that's their recollection. That's their story. And so we know that this happens, just like you're saying. There's a, there's a cognitive dissonance between the actual events and the, and the memories. Where do you think people are right now in your generation in terms of closeness to the truth? Yeah, I don't, that's a good question. So you're, you're right about the older vets. Like we hear them say something like, well, that's not. You know, that's not what the history books say. But when I hear them tell the story, I feel like, man, there's no way they're making that up. You know what I mean? Like there's, it may not be like, so Tim O'Brien wrote The Things They Carry, right? So it was a fictional account of his experience in the Vietnam War. Uh, we talked to a Vietnam veteran and there's no truer book of the Vietnam experience than The Things They Carry, right? It doesn't have to be nonfiction to be true. I, you know, and you could project things sometimes. Like, let me go back to answer your actual question. <laughs> I think we're close and far at the same time to the truth. Uh, we're close to the truth because they are, you know, it, it happened recently. So there's a lot of things we haven't forgotten yet. But I think we can get close to that truth as time goes by because you're, the, for, the more you're forced to think about it and replay it in your mind, I'd like to think the clearer it gets. Um, because you make, like, you know, I've, I've told a story before uh, at a breakfast and then afterwards, like, oh, you know what? Actually, that's not, I remember, that's not exactly how it happened. You know, there was, there was three guys, not two guys. Um, but I won't tell that story wrong again. You know what I mean? Because it's something that I, I, I objectively thought about, like, okay, what's true, what's not? And then I fixed it. So the more, you, I mean, the more you think about it, the more you tell it, I think the more, the truer it can get. But the more you hear other people's stories and the older you get, the more they can get conflated with your own, you know? Like, look at Brian Williams. I don't think he meant to be straight up dickhead liar, <laughs> 
But at some point, he convinced himself that a story he'd heard a million times was his story. So there's always danger in that as well. Yeah. I think historians may say that we are closer to the truth now, and we will continue to get further from the truth because of memory and, you know, how people are, right? They, they like to tell stories and they become fish stories and yada, yada. The stories that we're hearing now are really special because, in my estimation, they are about as close to the truth, although they may not be accurate. They are a truth as, you know, as one experiences that. Yeah. So I think it's interesting is there's a, uh, a big prevalence of GoPro helmet cam footage on YouTube from Afghanistan, particularly Afghanistan. After 2012, those got really popular. And there's, so there's so like hundreds of hours of footage of, you know, crew serve weapon gunner, like a 50 cal or Martin 18 machine gun riding around Afghanistan with his GoPro helmet on. Um, and so they're video recording everything they see. And then you hear the guy's narrative of what happened, and it's different from what the camera recorded. But it's not so different that it's, you know, it's just he thought a guy was on the left-hand side of the road. He was actually on the right-hand side of the road. But does that matter to the truth of the story? Like, a guy stood up. He shot an RPG at the truck. The truck exploded. Uh, you, they returned fire. Does it matter if the details of where the guy was standing? Do, does it really matter? Like, I don't think it does. And, you know, human brain's going to play those tricks on you all the time. But, yeah, I think we're, we're close to the truth. Well, let me ask you, what do you think? What, what do you think of, what's your opinion on the difference between like the, the general feeling of like a World War II veteran stories versus Vietnam? Like, do you, do you think there's a... I think there's truth with a capital T and there's truth with a small t. Right. And I think that w what we get mostly from any storyteller is truth with a small t. It's that person's truth. I'm not a historian. I don't pretend to be. I'm not in search of the historical truth as a, a historical scholar would be. So I accept the truth, quote-unquote truth, that comes from the stories. And if I happen to find out that it's not, you know, accurate or, you know, that validity is off on that, I don't get, I don't get too worried about that because I'm after the, the person's story. I think, I think what's most interesting is the person's story, not necessarily the, the real truth behind that story. I don't want to take the, the big truth lightly. It's important. To understand right. what the truth is. But it's certainly less important than the little T truth. Like we interviewed Eve Stein. She's what, 97 years old? Um, she talked about a train ride to Cleveland and she's mentioned stopping somewhere. It's like, uh, she probably got that wrong, right? She probably got the details of that wrong, but it doesn't matter. Like the sentiment of her feeling, her fear during the Holocaust, like that's that's all real. Yeah. So like, yeah, the, the A to Z, you know, what a historian would want and what a story teller would want are like two totally separate things, right? And at the heart of what oral history is, is that subjectivity, right? That's what makes oral history so important, that it is that subjective account of lived experience. And when you go after that, you have to accept that that's what you're going to get. And then afterwards, I mean, you could do the historical scholarship and then contextualize that. How accurate is it? How close to the real big truth is it? That's, those are the questions. When you ask someone for their story, I tend to accept their story for what it is, right? Not, right. More, than, not more than that. That's, I let, I let the, the beyond that for scholars. Right, right. Let's talk about the post-9-11 veteran storytelling project. This is very exciting. This started when? So today, so a year and a week ago today. And what is the program all about? So Veterans Breakfast Club, we create communities of listening around veterans, their stories. I'm sure many listeners are familiar with. Uh, <laughs> and we hold these events in the morning time where veterans, older Generations of veterans get together and they share their experiences. Uh, and Todd DePastino hosts those, and he brought me on last April to do an evening veteran storytelling program at bars, which is twofold. You know, they're off work, plus 
little social lubricant with the alcohol, get people a little more ready to tell their stories. And it's been great. We've had like 11 of these events so far. A good mix. We have some civilians come. We have younger veterans come. We have older veterans come. Uh, but primarily we focus on the stories of the younger veterans and they are what they are. We're in the early stages, right? So they're not, we're not getting a lot of deep, like moving stories like we do from the World War II guys because um, people haven't processed it yet. But we are getting, you know, the initial stuff, right? We're, we're, we gotta, it's like when you go on a date, right? There's certain things you got to get out of the way first before you can have any kind of meaningful conversation. So we're getting out um, you know, basic training experiences, you know, ranger school experiences, uh, you know, the drill sergeant that you hated, the platoon sergeant that you hated. We're, we're getting that stuff out of the way to get to know each other. And then as we go on, we're getting deeper and deeper into, you know, the veterans' individual experiences and closer to that, you know, truth with a lowercase t that we've talked about. Yeah. One of the reasons uh, I wanted to start off with sort of defining this generation of veterans, uh, that's important because it kind of contextualizes what we are hearing out of this program right? and what we're not hearing also out of the program, sure. right? And as a community, all communities, uh, it's a group of people that need to get to know each other and develop trust and develop comfortability, familiarity, so that these stories can you know, be as truthful as possible and forthcoming as possible. Because really, that's essentially what it's about, you know, is having this sort of a safe space where people can you know, share these experiences with not only other veterans, but the public. So one of the ways that you're doing this is through the live storytelling events in the evenings, but you're also doing podcasting, Yeah, right? we do a podcast, Longest War. Um, Longest War is a little more, like, crafted than, the, you know, the live events. Because live events, sometimes I'll meet someone for the very first time 20 minutes ago and then ask them to come there and tell a story. So I don't even know what their story is yet. Uh, the podcast has thus far been people that we've gotten to know really well through the program and that are comfortable with sharing the story and kind of honestly putting their guard down a little bit and an answering questions that we throw at them. We've got some cool guests on. We just had Sebastian Younger on. He was on recently. That will be released soon. And who is uh, Sebastian Younger? Sebastian Younger is a uh, Oscar-nominated director for Restrepo. Uh, he also written several New York Times bestsellers, one of those being War, which was about his experience in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan in 2008. And most recently, uh, a book called Tribe, which is about fascinating stuff about how uh, you know, he does thesis on this Indian tribe and there was zero rate of PTSD amongst this tribe because of how they were treated on their homecoming. So really good stuff. So we're excited to uh, release that episode soon. We've had people from all over the country on. We've, uh, you know, did one with a woman from LA. We did a couple with guys from, uh, you know, Brooklyn a few weeks ago. So it's really cool. It's, it's cool to hear all these different perspectives and experiences on their service, but like there's also these common threads that run through it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty neat. So yeah, the stories have been great um, and we're getting bigger. The more people come and they see what it is that you, you don't have to share something you don't want to, you only share what you want to talk about. Like that's, that's how we get there. And the neat thing about the post 9-11 generation is that, you know, and this seems a downside for a lot of people, like we're there's not many of us. Like it's a very small community of people and most of us have done multiple tours overseas. So when you meet someone, at least a 30% chance if they deployed, you deployed that you were in the same place, maybe not the same time. But so like, there's always, you always run into somebody like, oh, you were at, you know, Camp Blessing in 2000. I was like, I was there in 07, man. And so it's like, you talk to each other about like, what, how different was it, right? World War II, you were there front to finish, right? You didn't, you couldn't ask somebody, hey, what was Paris like in 48? It's like, well, shit, man. Like you were there the whole time. Um, so it's cool to like talk to each other about how things have changed, you know, uh, how things are evolving. And it, it gives you kind of like an automatic connection with someone, right? So you find out someone was in the same place you were, even at different times. 
and you have this thing that you can talk about and like have these inside things and it gives you a level of trust with that person. So you're willing to open up a little more, which is cool. I don't know of many post 9-11 veterans storytelling projects in the country. Is this unique? Is this so like uh, one of a kind? Not quite one of a kind. I think the platforms that we use were, I, I don't know, another one. I don't know one that holds live events and does like national podcasts. Um, there's some like great like, universities that have veteran storytelling programs. You know, there's organization Cincinnati that does like a stage thing, but there's no one that, no, there's no one that does what we do. I always like to ask my guests for advice. For those out there who are listening, they have, in this case, a post-9-11 veteran in their family, a mom, a dad, sister, brother, interested in their story. What advice would you give that person uh, about going about getting that story recorded, preserved, and shared with others? Any advice? Yeah. It's all about how you, you frame the proposal, right? Don't say it in the words, you just said it. Like, don't say, we're going to sit down, we're going to record, we're going to preserve, we're going to put this out there. That'll spook a lot of people, myself included. I don't know if I'd say yes to that. <laughs> um, you're like, well, what do you mean by recorded and preserved? Like, who's, my kid's going to be able to hear this? Like, uh, is my wife going to be able to hear this? What about, uh, tell me your story. Yeah, well, if you just, you know, like, uh, like the story core model. On the drive in here today, I heard a fascinating one. It was a, a 13-year-old girl whose father was a... OIF veteran, interviewing her, you know, ninth grade teacher who was also an OIF veteran, right? So you just frame it as a conversation. Like, are, would you be willing to sit down with me and just talk? Um, and you, this is your story. It's your narrative. So you talk about what you want to talk about. The most dangerous thing you can do in this kind of situation, or the quickest way to turn someone off is try to project what you want them to say, right? Because um, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about what their story is and how they want to tell it. So don't force them to try to confess or, you know, talk about something that they're not ready to yet. It'll come. But the first step is getting them in, just sitting them down and say, what was the funniest thing that happened to you? Right. That'll get people going. Like, what was the one thing at basic training that made you regret your decision to join the military? Because everybody's got that story. Like, what was the funniest thing a drill sergeant said and you just could not keep a straight face and you got the shit smoked out of you for it. Like those, everyone's got those kind of stories. So open up with something like that. Open up with something that's on the lighter side. And that'll tell you a lot about that person, you know, and what their comfort level is with talking about stuff. I've heard people say recently, you know, instead of thanking veterans for their service, which is, which is a good thing, right? But instead of it's thanking- It's a nice gesture. But ask them their story. Show interest in what, what they did, yeah. their experiences, and ask them about it to share with you some of their experiences. Yeah, because yeah. it, it, thanking a veteran for their service is very nice, but that's it. Let's be honest. Like, it's just a very nice thing to do. Um, I don't put a lot of stock into it. Somebody says, thank you for your service. I'm like, well, you don't know what I did. What are you thanking me for? Um, so it's kind of an empty gesture. It, it, like I'm saying, it's not, I don't, I don't want to disparage anyone that does that. I'm sure they're perfectly nice folks, but it's, it just seems empty. It's like, well, you don't, yeah, ask me about the experience now. That being said, you're on a bus. Don't lean over the guy and be like, hey, did you kill anybody? Like, that's not the way to go about getting that story. Never ask someone that question, like, hey, did you kill anybody, right? Like, you're not going to, in any environment, get any sort of meaningful answer. You might get the shit kicked out of you. So, so yeah, just be mindful of, like, of how you're asking, what you're asking. Don't ask, you know, how do you feel about the war in Iraq, right? Like, that's not, that's not a good way to lead into it. But, conversely, if you ask, talk about their experiences, like, you could probably deduce how they feel about the war in Iraq, right? So, yeah, just be... 
compassionate, right? Like it's their story. Have, have a human conversation, as yeah. I like to say. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's what it should be about is a real honest to goodness, just conversation between human beings and wherever that goes, that goes. But that you can't get it any better than that. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Like it really is. Each generation, and it's different, the way we speak, the way we talk about things is different. But I find Vietnam stories just as fascinating as World War II stories and post 9-11 stories just fascinating as Vietnam stories. Well, we're glad that you are getting those stories, capturing, preserving, sharing those stories. <laughs> <laughs> or asking people just to tell them. Right. Yeah, that's very important. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We will be watching your progress. We will be tuning in. Our guest today has been Nick Grimes, director of the Post-9-11 Veterans Storytelling Project, a new interesting storytelling endeavor by the Veterans Breakfast Club. Nick, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And we are definitely going to check you out at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Awesome. Thanks so much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story, remember what you said. You promised me, you said you would, you gotta give in so I'll be good. Tell me a story, then I'll go to bed. I'm so glad you f***ed that up so many times, man. It makes me feel way less bad about doing <laughs> oh, dude, it. I do, I do all the time. It's so hard. Tell me a story, tell me a story. A story, remember what you said. You promised me, you said you would. You got to give in, so I'll be good. Here's a tale you'll never forget. Ouch, my tail's all red. And now get up to bed.